You'll say, why are you always on the sidelines? Why are you saying, well, I say, because that's where I'm forced to be, because there is no room for independent thought or, 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 or critical thinking or, uh, or, or, or intelligent radical reform in our political system. Welcome to another episode of Chatter, a podcast from The Gist, with me, Josh Hamilton. Journalist, author, and Mail on Sunday columnist Peter Hitchens was my guest on today's show. He is a former foreign correspondent from Moscow and Washington, and author of numerous books including The Rage Against God and The Abolition of Britain. This was a really exciting interview for me, and definitely one of the biggest guests I've ever had the pleasure of interviewing. We talked about the lockdown, the Great Mask debate, the failure of Britain's institutions, and much, much more. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. So, here's Peter Hitchens. So, fantastic. Peter, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, you've been talking for a number of years about the, the collapse of Britain and the decline of its institutions. Uh, do you think that the coronavirus pandemic lockdown just 2020 is is really the, the final nail in the coffin for, for a number of institutions? Or, you know, do you see a little light at the end of the tunnel? Well, the light at the end of the tunnel is usually, as we know, an oncoming train. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I've never known uh, the the number of the days uh, that, that, is, that, that, that remain to, to what used to be a great civilization. There's a lot of ruin in a nation, as Adam Smith said, and you can go on destroying a culture, an economy, a civilization for many, many years without finishing it off. But I would say for certain that, that this, the mishandling of the virus by the British government is, will certainly hasten and intensify the, the decline and make sure that it, it, it runs, as it were, at a higher temperature. Uh, so it doesn't look good to me. I, I, I'm not even sure that this frenzy will end. We may be in a, in a permanent state of ossified panic, as we have been also since September the 11th in our mm. exaggerated fear of the, uh, of, of the danger of terrorism to civilized societies and our exaggerated precautions, uh, self-damaging precautions taken in response to that. I wasn't uh, tending to jump so so quickly to to you know dire predictions, but um, there's something that that you'd kind of hinted at that that really struck me um, in an interview you did recently, um, and it was to suggest uh, now correct me if I'm wrong that there's been no peacetime government that's ever taken away civil liberties in this way um, without vote or debate, and then and then subsequently given them up peacefully. Um, I've just been kind of running that through my mind for the last uh, few days and just been utterly terrified um, at the at how this ends. Like, wh- where do you see us going with this? Is there a will there be a vote in, in some way or any form of like regaining of democracy on the issue of, of these rules that have taken away our civil liberties? Well, I have been for some time skeptical about the, the ability of democracy. Uh, to defend liberty, and in fact, I often feel that democracy and liberty are 
uh, enemies. I, I'm very much a Lewisy under the law person. I think that, that that is the absolute key to civilization, that you have freedom of speech, assembly and thought, and that these are guaranteed by laws which are respected, whether it suits them or not, mm. uh, by a limited government. And democracy is quite a recent experiment and has on more than one occasion been used to overthrow liberty under the law. Uh, the, the most obvious example, of course, is the one you can't cite, uh, which is, 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 the, is the one of Germany in 1933. But a more recent example, which you, you can cite without immediately being ruled out of order, is in Turkey, uh, where President Erdogan has, uh, has used democracy to pretty much destroy what there was of civil society uh, there is almost no free press in Turkey now. The press is pretty much an adjunct to the government. The, the courts are disgracefully biased. Uh, there is no real lawful protection for, for the individual. And there is no real protection for dissent. And this has happened with amazing speed and also with remarkable lack of, uh, of, of protests from the outside world. People don't seem to even seem to be aware of the fact that what was until recently, at least in, 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 in modern terms, a relatively free country in the in the Middle East, a country of great importance, has now become pretty much an autocratic despotism, uh, and this happened. I say it was it was achieved through democracy. So democracy isn't the issue. Democracy is, uh, is 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 not the point. The point is how much liberty do we have? Uh, liberty is guaranteed not so much by democracy as by adversarial parliaments, where you actually have two genuinely opposed parties. And the the, the great statement by Richard Neville, the editor of Oz magazine. Uh, said one of the cleverest things said in modern times, there is an inch of difference, he said, in about 1968, I think. There is an inch of difference between the Labour Party and the Conservative Party in Britain, but it is in that inch that we all live. <laughs> and that inch has now pretty much disappeared. Mm. And where, where there is no real adversarial contest in Parliament, and there certainly isn't in the, in, the, in the United Kingdom Parliament now, then liberty is very much under threat because there's no proper opposition. And one of the things that's been very notable since this began is that the official opposition is not opposed, and that other people who might have had a, 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 a position from which they could have opposed or criticised the government have not used it. Basically, the brakes haven't worked. Mm. Shiny, a very shiny old Rolls Royce. It looks quite impressive. <laughs> when you actually start driving it, you'll find that, that particularly, say the brakes, do, the, the, the brakes do not work. No one's serviced them, and so that not only the opposition and Parliament, but also the courts and much of the media and civil society in general have completely failed to say, hang on a minute, does any of this make sense? And as a result, I think in, in, in Britain, we're almost certainly being ruled unlawfully by decrees called, uh, uh, called statutory instruments, which are based on a 1984 Act of Parliament, which was never meant to bear this weight. It simply wasn't, but that, but that is the basis on which it's all being done. If it could ever get before the courts, I think it would be turned, uh, turned over. But the courts have so far shown no interest whatsoever in, in paying any attention. Mm. One of the when the when the brakes don't work, I and mean, it is is probably the, the worst thing to happen uh, in any uh, it, 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 if if you've got something really a really really powerful machine like a state. Uh, if there's no way to stop it or slow it down, then you, that's when you begin to be frightened. Hmm. Uh, there's another example, actually, I'd cite similar to Turkey that's a little closer to home as well in uh, Hungary with Viktor Orban. Who's that's true, yeah. It's, it's not... It, it, <laughs> Hungary's flirtation with, uh, with liberal democracy was brief in the first place. But hmm. yes, 
true. That, that, that there isn't any question that, uh, and also the um, the current Polish government has um, has many faults of the same sort. But they haven't gone as far as Turkey. Mm. I don't think. I mean, Orban is obviously developing into a despot, but I think the he, he hasn't really done, for instance, to the courts or the press as uh, such brutal things as Erdogan has done mm. uh, to to those things in Turkey yet. But yeah, sure, you're right. There there, there are many worrying there are many worrying developments. Mm. Well, something that's honestly worrying for for me in the UK is to watch so many of our institutions. Uh, as you put it, like put on the brakes collectively all at the same time. Like Parliament has failed to hold the government to account. Uh, the press has also failed to hold government to account. And to an extent, I would say the the people as well have, have failed to, to say, no, we're not going to accept this. Although I do think the tide is turning. Now, you mentioned that that free speech is one of the the the, the best ways perhaps in which we could fight back against um what you've described as, as disproportionate measures from the government. Um, do you think, or what to what extent do you think free speech has been suppressed on, on this issue? Um, I mean, the, the Great Barrington Declaration is a, is an excellent um, example, but there's, there's plenty of examples of the, the press and of um, media outlets just failing to show that there's a debate on, on the issue of masks, for example. Well, free speech is a very interesting thing. It, 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 it's, it depends so much, particularly in a modern society, on access uh, to, to major platforms. Uh, there may well be people standing on hilltops all over these islands uh, saying very sensible things very <laughs> eloquently, but nobody can hear them. So is that, in reality, free speech? I think probably not. Uh, a lot of the major media in this country have, have failed completely. The, the BBC has actually now deserves to be closed out because it has completely failed to observe its charter and agreement. Uh, the, no, this is a serious. I, I'm quite serious about this. I don't think that there's any uh, there's any question, but that the BBC's charter obliges it uh, to take an impartial stance on issues of, of major controversy, and this is the agreement, the legal agreement under which the government collects the license fee for it. I think the BBC has and can be demonstrated. To have failed uh, to 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 be impartial in this it has become effectively a government broadcasting service. And when this is over, uh, if it ever is over, then one of the things I shall do will be to campaign for the closed closure of the BBC and its replacement by a new broadcaster, which is prepared to abide by the charter and agreement. I think it's, there's no question that they've uh, that they've destroyed the justification for their continued existence by what they've done. Uh, many newspapers have also been quite uh, closed. Uh, to opposition, uh, but the other thing which you mentioned, of course, which is particularly important for the, those generations which are not particularly interested in the BBC or, or newspapers, uh, the, the the social media through which they get their information, it's quite plain from what we learn. There's a great deal of shadow banning and other algorithm manipulation, which means that dissenting voices find it very hard to reach the public. And I think we do now live in something approaching a censored society. But the thing about uh, about would-be despots is that they've all learned a lot. Uh, people think, well, the Soviet Union came to an end in 1991. Uh, surely um, we're not going to go through all that again. No, we're not, because people who want to exercise absolute power of that kind know that they don't need to behave in the way that the Soviet Union did. They don't need a gulag. Mm. Uh, the, if you threaten someone with unemployment and the loss of livelihood, then you're, it's just as effective 
as threatening to send them to a labor camp, but Amnesty International is not going to intervene or, and nobody is going to notice or care. Similarly, if you can find ways through algorithms of simply obliterating from public view dissenting voices, then who needs a censorship? Hmm. It doesn't, so people have learned more subtle ways of achieving the same thing. And, and, and because they're more subtle, people are much less likely to protest against it. And it, it, that, that, that is definitely the state that we're in. You, 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 the, the, the circumstances in which a critical mass of opposition to government can form uh, seem to me to be more and more elusive because people simply don't notice that they are that they are being deprived of, of, of freedom of speech and indeed the equally important freedom to hear. Hmm. Are you in any way like encouraged by, for example, there was a, a march in, in London on, on Friday or Saturday that um, was reported to have tens of thousands of people um, marching against the, the restrictions that have been imposed. Do, does, that, does that give you hope that, that perhaps the information is, is filtering through? I'm not at all. I spent many years on, on the Marxist left and we used to demonstrate all the time. And I remember one of um, my more cynical and experienced comrades saying, I'd, I'd come home from one of these big demonstrations, say, well, that was a fantastic demonstration we had in London today, thousands on the streets. He said, you, do, you, do you not understand? He said, demonstrations are demonstrations of impotence. You never see the, uh, the, the, the lobby for building more motorways holding a demonstration in London. Uh, people who are serious about power are never to be found on the streets demonstrating. The other thing, of course, about many of these demonstrations is that large numbers of people turn up to them who are from the David Icke uh, G5 conspiracy uh, zone. <laughs> and the moment you're seen on the streets next door to such people, then you, 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 you might as well uh, drop dead because you're, no one will listen to you. Mm. Uh, because the guilt by association spears will be used to suggest that you're just like them. So no, I have I take absolutely no comfort from this at all. A, re a real shift of opinion would have to be expressed in different ways. And the has the thing which encourages much much more is that the tone of quite a lot of the major newspapers has shifted dramatically. I should say probably in the past three weeks, mm. there's much much more opposition and criticism of the government. It should have happened in March. Uh, it's a great pity that it didn't, but at least it is happening now, and that is that does give me some encouragement. But it's nothing like enough. Mm. Why do you think? Why do you think the prevailing wisdom was and remained for so long that the the media were going to sort broadly, not everyone obviously, but we're going to support saying, okay, the masks are what we have to do, the lockdowns are what we have to do, without any real evidence I, I mean you've talked about it a lot that there's there's no real correlation between the severity of the measures imposed across different countries and the effectiveness of them in um c controlling i don't like that word because you know it's a virus we're not going to control it but uh, in preventing like a high number of cases or or deaths um, like why do you think that prevailing wisdom remained for so long and and why it was so difficult to to challenge especially in the beginning Oh, but it always does, because fear is the most powerful motivation of all. Uh, and I think we now know that the, the government engaged some very skillful hidden persuaders to suggest from the very start that we were faced with a, a, a grave danger. Of course, there have been in, in, in the past, particularly in the Far East, quite serious outbreaks of viruses which have killed large numbers of people and if not contained, would have killed many more. So it wasn't wholly illogical to assume that this was, uh, that this was a danger. Uh, and, and people stampede. I, I've been in my trade of journalism now since 19, 
72, really, uh, which started with, with, with a stint on the, the Socialist Worker, the, the, the organ of the International Socialists, a, a Trotskyist group. But I've been doing journalism for a very long time. And what I found from the beginning when I first started reporting for major national newspapers was that uh, journalists and newspapers don't actually particularly want to, uh, to challenge each other. That if you produced a story about an event which was different from those of your rivals and other papers, you didn't get a, a note of congratulation for your news editor saying, "Oh well done, let's do, let, let, let's let's celebrate the fact that you've done something different." You tended to get called, uh, in my case, at, at eleven o'clock at night, saying, "Why isn't your story more or less identical to the one in the Daily Mail?" <laughs> uh, when I then worked for the Daily Express, because they wanted everybody wants to have the same thing, uh, and and I learned that. And it was pretty much irresistible. I then went off into different forms of journalism and came back and I found I, I had a platform to do things differently. And I began uh, to take an attitude towards all conventional wisdom that deserves to be examined skeptically. And what I found repeatedly, whether it be over antidepressants or uh, so-called ADHD or dyslexia uh, or the, 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 the attack on... Uh, on, on Serbia in the Kosovo war, or indeed the Iraq war, or the Libyan war, or recently the Syrian war. Again, 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 I, I would look into the actual issues and find that what I was being told was largely incorrect factually and reasoned very badly. But it, I might as well, in many cases, save my breath because I would come up with all this densely researched stuff. And people would say, thank you very much. And then they carry on as if I hadn't said it because people are. And, and journalists are by no means immune from this. People are flock animals. They like to be together. And I, I've often said, I, in, a, in a barbaric society, somebody like me would have been clubbed to death probably before I was seven. <laughs> being different. Uh, it's only in civilized societies that people like me survive to maturity. And But although we don't get clubbed to death anymore, we just get ignored. But there is a huge conformism, a huge desire to be in the, in the crowd, in the flock. Uh, in every in every form of like, look at uh, look at Parliament, look at the the, 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 un, the baying in unison, which ought to shame people. Look at the, uh, the, the, the the almost total absence of challenge to so many things that were said. And we've also had for many years a debased education system, uh, particularly on the on the British mainland, in which people are, are taught what to think but not how to think. And and this has been going on now really since the middle nineteen sixties. So there are very few people now still standing who can remember being educated in a, in a way which taught you to challenge what you've been told, and, and they just aren't there. And also there are fewer and fewer people with, in politics with experience of hard life. And there were lots of people uh, who'd actually, for instance, served in war. Dennis Healy, I think, had, been, had actually been on the beach at Anzio during the, uh, during, during the, uh, the invasion of Italy. And these were people with real hard experience. Now look at them. They're non-entities. You've never experienced anything. So we have a, a culture which is incapable of questioning. And there you are. And this is what happens when you have that sort of culture. Yeah, I've heard you talk about about the lack of of, of leadership in in Parliament before, and and to sort of mention the the crowd mentality as well. And it's something I've been discussing. Um, are you familiar with the book uh, "The Madness of Crowds" by Douglas Murray? I'm familiar with it, but I have not read it. Okay. Um, it is really fantastic. Um, he, I would mention here that it's, it's, it strikes me as really strange that Douglas Murray, who's written a book called The Madness of Crowds, has been almost completely absent from this debate <laughs> uh, over the over the, probably the most spectacular uh, episode of The Madness of Crowds in modern 
in modern human history. Where has he been? Mm. Uh, if he's such a hero of, of our times, uh, why has he been so completely useless, uh, in my view, in this uh, in this event? His voice would have been important. I'm baffled by his absence and continue to be. Mm. Well, he's on a, a tour of America trying to promote the book at the moment. Well, sure, but that doesn't prevent him from from saying from time to time, I think I think uh, the world's gone mad mm. again about the coronavirus, but I haven't heard that. No. Maybe I- he's said it, but uh, he must have said it somewhere you know, beyond Hope, Idaho, or somewhere where it just wasn't picked up. <laughs> no, yeah, perhaps. Uh, it definitely, the book definitely uh, deserves, I think, a coronavirus um appendix added on but um well, it's kind of obvious isn't it yeah yeah um i mean so, so where is it and it's, it's not just him i mean i just look around at so many uh, so many people I, in, in his case i'll name names because i find it so infuriating but uh you look around at, at major figures in the world of comment and um and, and debate how many of them have, have treated this as if it was uh, not worthy of their intellect yeah, I mean, they, they will. I, I'll tell you, in two years' time, they'll all be saying, "Well, I knew from the start it was a mistake." Yeah, <laughs> everybody will be saying that. This is this is my experience of the Iraq War as one of those who opposed it from the start. Mm. I, everybody I know now opposed it from the start, except that I know equally well they didn't at the time, but I did. Mm. It'll be the same. Yeah. Well, admittedly, um, I was. Uh, in favor of the of the lockdowns and whatnot at the start it was actually sam my, my tech guy who who uh convinced me <laughs> otherwise i mean encouraged it me was to- at the start i think i mean i don't i i, I think it was but the uh, what it was also but it was not impossible uh, at the start to be opposed to it uh and it was perfectly perfectly easy to see that there was something about it which was uh, at the very least suspect uh, which i pursued I, I don't. I, I, I can understand why people were. I said earlier, right? I mean, it, it, there have been serious virus problems in the past. This could have been one of them. I just. I don't. I think it pretty evidently wasn't. Uh, but sure, it was excusable. But it, it, and I'm glad when people change their minds. Uh, but it, I, I will insist because I can show it. This is not hindsight. That it was perfectly possible back in March to say this was a mistake. Mm. Something I've been wrestling with is um, what the what the difference is between people who are, for example, in favor of masks and opposed to masks. I've been trying to find, um, like, is there like a psychological like tick or issue that, that, that defines, are they going to be in favor or, or opposed to, to the idea of, of masks? And the, the only thing that I've come up with thus far is that, is it a sign of your support for collective responsibility as a, or, uh, personal responsibility as opposed to collective responsibility, like whether someone believes that in any issue, especially one that faces the entire nation, whether we should take action as individuals or as a collective society. And that's that's the best um, the best idea I have so far as to why some people would prefer you to have your own choice on the mask issue and some people feel it has to be mandated. Um, do you have any any thoughts on this? Well, I do, and I've written a long article for the Critic magazine, which is readily available on the web, uh, about how I believe that the the wearing of the of the face covering is, in fact, a uh, like a, a party armband or the, the waving of a flag. Uh, no, don't smile; it's not funny. This is this is compelled speech. This is people being compelled by law to make a statement in support of a policy which uh, is contentious. Uh, if I were to, to wear one of those things, I would be saying publicly in an extraordinarily public way, in which I cancel half my face, 
that I, I, I assented either out of conviction or out of fear uh, to a policy which I think is is mistaken. Uh, it's I I do not go around challenging people wearing face coverings and saying take that off, you stupid fool. Uh, I might privately think that their action is is misguided. Uh, and ill-informed, but I leave them to their own devices. But I do quite often encounter people who who, who say to me, "You should be wearing a face covering." Well, in that case, let's you know, let's step outside wherever we are, uh, and we'll discuss it. Uh, and they won't. Uh, there's an unwillingness to do it. So there is a. It, it's really. It's again. It's uh, it, it's a it's a battle between the conformists, and most people are conformists. Uh, and the uh, the difficult individuals such as me, and as I said, in a in a in a barbaric society, I would have been beaten to death in my childhood for being so difficult. But I've survived. But in what we have increasingly is is a conformist society in which nonconformists are isolated, despised, ganged up on, and all the rest of it. You need a bit of uh, a bit of nerve uh, to challenge it. And again, I, I'm I'm. But by no means particularly courageous, but I do have a, a certain amount of nerve, which is a different thing, and I will oppose it. But most people will, for, for the sake of a quiet life, do it. I don't blame them. But there is an, the most important difference between the pro-face covering and the anti-face covering groups is that, the, the, in my view, the anti-face covering groups do not wish to impose their opinions on their opponents, whereas the pro-face covering the, the pro-face covering faction very much do wish to impose their opinions on their opponents, and that that is that is a key dif- difference, and in my view, a strong moral difference. Mm. I, I am genuinely tolerant of people who disagree with me. I have to I have to work in any debate on the assumption that I might be wrong. They won't do that. Mm. I mean the 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 thing that I see it as a as quite similar to as well um, is the the idea of like you've just you've compared it to compelled speech there. Um, and well, I didn't compare it to compelled speech. I stated that it is compelled speech. Uh, it reminds me slightly of the issue over the the the, the gay cake, uh, the ashes case, yeah. uh, where uh, people couldn't see that the cake was not a cake. It's sort of a Magritte like statement, but it's true. The cake was not a cake. The cake for the purposes of the of the issue was in fact a publication. Uh, what Ashes were being asked to do was to, was was to publish. Uh, so it happened to be on a cake, mm. but to publish a statement with which they didn't dis- which with which they didn't agree. Now being being forced to keep quiet about what you do think is bad, but being forced to make a statement with which you disagree is much worse and is a much deeper plunge into the stinking pool of totalitarianism. And it, this is compelled speech. What, you know, if you if you wear one of those things, you're saying whether you, you know, whether you voluntarily agree with it or not, you're saying I assent to this policy. Yeah, and I don't. So what am I supposed to do? Uh, the the uh, the cake issue is is quite uh, is quite it's interesting. Same, it is yeah. the same thing. You need to you need to do a, a you need to push aside the obvious and look at the actual core of it. The core of it wasn't a cake. The core of it was 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 a person. Being compelled by law uh, to publish a statement with which he disagreed. Mm. I mean, the, the the ruling in the Kate case, um, as far as I was aware, was that they had agreed that they had discriminated, but that they couldn't do much about it because the um, because they had to um, allow that they wouldn't infringe upon the Article Ten right under the, the European. Um, 
the European Constitution to I not express a particular opinion. Um, I think the courts eventually recognised it was a speech issue rather than a, a discrimination issue, and that. But, uh, but it took a long time for them to get there. Mm. Now, there's a court case you've been you've been uh, talking about on on Mike Graham's show on on talk radio. Is that um, why do you think that that case is is so crucial? Well, because it is the only case. I mean, I I, I have I'm not a lawyer. I don't have uh, legal expertise. Uh, I'm reasonably aware of the issues involved. It is the only case. Uh, this is the Simon Dolan uh, case is the only attempt taken by anybody to challenge the lawfulness of what the government has done. Now, a couple of years ago, you'll probably remember the Gina Miller case, under which she, in my view, quite uh, reasonably challenged the government's use of Henry VIII's powers. And then later on, there was a subsequent case um, in, in which the courts took up uh, arguments against uh, Johnson's uh, proroguing of Parliament. And both of those cases were um, were important. I think the second one was arguably legitimate as to whether it was a matter for the courts at all. But the, the Gina Miller case undoubtedly had, had merit, and I was not at all surprised when she won. And it got enormous coverage at the time. Uh, and also, it, it, it glided into the courts without any great difficulty. The Simon Dolan case—they've been trying to get it into the courts now for months, and it's it's incredibly difficult to get a judge to say, "Well, actually, yes, there is at least a case to answer here." Uh, but what what it is ultimately aimed at is whether these actions are lawful, and there is a very strong—they're not. Do you understand this? The issue of the the Public Health Act of 1984 as amended by New Labour, because this is the act on which all these decrees, from mask wearing to um, to, to shutdowns, they're all based on it. And the, the, what what is being done is that the government issues statutory instruments. Now, statutory instruments are, are a way of, of, of doing rapid legislation. And in fact, they can be done retroactively, so Parliament could pretty much approve them later if the government claims they're urgent. So they are, in effect, decrees. But the, the law on statutory instruments uh, is, is is quite simply that they have to be based on the Acts of Parliament, which they refer to. Now, the Acts of Parliament, which these all these refer to, the 1984 Public Health Act, simply does not give the sort of powers and is plainly not designed to be used in this way. And I think that if it ever came to a serious court, the court would have to rule that that was the case, and, and much of what the government had done would have to be struck down. But it can't at the moment, as I say, the courts, there's still a possibility that it may it may get into the courts. But it, this has been going on for months, delay after delay, as if it wasn't even urgent mm, yeah. that the economy was being smashed to pieces and people were being deprived of ancient liberties. Uh, and, and, and huge numbers of people were, were missing vital medical treatment and tests, which with, with terrible, as, as if it were as if it was something that simply didn't matter, some ancient historical case. It's just been the, the pushback uh, against it from the courts has been extraordinary. And then it, it may eventually get in, but it, the, the, you compare it with the progress of the Gina Miller case, it's quite shocking to me. Mm. Now, it's something that, that I kind of realized last night while I was looking at some of the coverage uh, of this was that there's a lot of focus on how our hospitals are now becoming overwhelmed. The ICUs are, are, are overwhelmed. And honestly, it made me consider whether the... The government is going to attempt to blame the NHS winter crisis on COVID, regardless of how how many cases, deaths, or hospitalizations there there actually are. Um, do you see that being something that the, they're they're going to try and use as as an excuse for the the perhaps stretched nature of the NHS, or um, you know, what, what do you think about the the, the winter crisis? 
Well, my attitude towards anything the government says is, is encapsulated in the old, uh, the old saying of Otto von Bismarck, never believe anything until it's been officially denied. Uh, I also bear in mind the old, um, the old rule about the statistics of the Soviet Union, uh, which, was, which was said to suffer from the bikini effect. That is to say, they, uh, they, they, they um, were more interesting for what they concealed than for what they revealed. <laughs> and the, the use or abuse of statistics uh, by this government uh, ought to be investigated. At every point since the beginning, the, the classification of deaths with or from COVID, uh, the failure to really make clear uh, the, 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 that most of these deaths were actually affecting uh, people who had serious uh, medical conditions and were very old. Uh, the, the, the ridiculous predictions uh, issued by Imperial College, which didn't turn out to be true, and yet the continued use of Imperial College people and methods by the government. It's just endless. And now we have, I try every so often uh, to go to uh, government departments and to ask them uh, to explain to me how certain figures have been gathered. But I'm particularly interested at the moment in, in, in hospital admissions. And I just don't get answers. Hmm. Like just, just nothing, just stonewalling. Uh, what I tend to get, it's like the old thing: you ask for a glass of water, and you get a fire hydrant. Uh, and you go to a department and, and and say on on Monday. I'm usually quite careful to begin these these inquiries at the beginning of the week to give them plenty of time. And then at the last minute, when they know it's my deadline, they send me a whole load of spreadsheets and say it's in here somewhere. Find it. Hmm. Well, if I if I wanted to, if I were a spreadsheet expert, and if I wanted to do, that, I would have done it myself. What do you go to the government for? I say, well, how do you justify these things that you're saying? And you would have seen, I hope, if you go to the lockdown skeptics site, for instance, the recent attempt by the Manchester Evening News to discover the truth about about claims of, of intensive care units being overwhelmed, and they've just found it wasn't true. Uh, the there is a particular problem with intensive care in Britain, and the the King's Fund. Think tank did a report on this quite recently, pointing out that I think by European standards, Britain has a very small number of intensive care beds anyway, and has done for some mm. time. So it's the distance between them being at normal and very heavily used is quite small. And so if you have say say well, eighty five percent of ICU beds are occupied, doesn't actually mean very much. They probably normally would be at this time of year, and this will rise as you rightly say. There is always a winter crisis of some kind in the health service. Mm. This will rise. Uh, in the um, in the months to come, uh, probably to a peak in, in December or January, and because of the obligation to test for COVID, uh, many of the patients will be found to be suffering from COVID. But whether that's actually the principal reason why they're in hospital is another matter altogether. Uh, it's been noticeable that uh, that recorded deaths from pneumonia uh, and um, and from influenza seem to be dropping almost to vanishing point. Well, is, have these diseases vanished or are they just uh, uh, people who, who are suffering from them uh, also perhaps uh, testing positive for COVID and being classified as COVID deaths? I don't know, but I think one just has to be extremely alert and skeptical about anything these people say. I don't think that they've been straight with the population from the start. 
Yeah, I'm. Um, I was I was speaking to to a friend of mine last night who is um she's from Spain and th- she said that her family called and said that they've just been put into um a crisis mode or crisis state until April. And yeah. I've already spoken to a few friends who who work there during the summer and they they were complaining to me that they had been stopped on the street with no one else around walking home from work and been told by the police to put their mask on on the street surrounded and and honestly i just i think when i when i see these measures i'm like you know this would never fly in the uk in in my head i say you know the british people would just not accept this level of of restrictions on our civil liberties but yet we kind of did um at the in in april in may accept a serious restriction to our civil liberties do like why do you think for example in spain or france or even in the uk there's been so little pushback about the loss of our rights that the that, that people genuinely fought and, and died to protect throughout the 20th century well we may be over racing uh our forebears the past i don't know um, but my suspicion is that the people who did fight for their liberties and independence in the 20th century would not have put up with this in the way that we do. I think we are a more complacent uh, and a more conformist people than they were. And I think a lot of the spirit is gone, and there are many reasons for this, and I've examined them in, in several books, starting with my first one, The Abolition of Britain, back in 1999. Uh, it, this isn't the country that it used to be, uh, but I, say I may be overestimating the, the, um, the general stroppiness of the people in the past. So one has to look, uh, particularly interestingly enough, at the, the labor movement of that period. Uh, where you see a very strong spirit of resistance. Uh, and there was still quite a lot of that around when I was an industrial and labor reporter in the late 1970s and, and early 1980s. But these were, in many cases, I remember one of my best contacts in the engineering union uh, was a man who'd actually stormed onto the beach at Aramosh on, on D-Day uh, in the Marines. And these were a generation quite different from the one we have now. I think the country's changed. But... Uh, but 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 fear is an enormously powerful driver of behavior. And very early on in this, I began to notice. I live in a city which is supposedly one of the most educated cities in the in the world, in Oxford. And I was riding my bicycle on during my permitted exercise uh, down a, 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 a wide, beautiful road in North Oxford, which is not just wide for for, for the roadway; it has very wide pavements. It was a lovely spring morning. It was totally silent because there was no traffic. And the whir of my bicycle gears could probably be heard from perhaps 20 yards away. And I saw a woman with her two small children uh, on the pavement, on this wide pavement, walking quite close to the road's edge. And she heard the whir of my gear, looked around, saw me coming. And with a look of horror on her face, she gathered her children to her and pulled them away from the edge of the pavement, lest I, uh, by going past at 20 miles an hour, should infect them with the deadly virus, which, as far as I know, has not killed any children at all, or so so few as to be quite strikingly unlikely. And that was the level of fear. I wouldn't at all. She probably had two degrees. But she, but fear had overcome all her reasoning abilities, and she behaved in this fashion. I, 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 I actually found it funny at the time, but in retrospect, I find it tragic. Mm. 
it is it's quite it's quite stunning sometimes when when you realize how how easily fear can pervade the sort of general feeling of of a of an entire society but something that i i found really really interesting in the summer was um so i was i was lucky enough to to get away during the summer um i managed to hop from between a few different European countries, just as as lockdowns sort of started or ended, I was I, I managed to get into to Italy, uh, Switzerland, Holland, um, Austria, and Croatia to see a whole bunch of friends um, that I work with in winter. And going across the border was really really interesting. Just the 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 atmosphere would change almost instantly depending on what country you were going into. Um, and the one, the one that was that you, I could, I could genuinely sense the fear all around me was in Italy. And I was only in Italy for about thirty minutes as I crossed over the border to change trains and then go into Switzerland. But just even that thirty minutes stood in the in the train station. I was really struck by by how much fear you could actually feel in the atmosphere of of just the train station, and and I was just shocked by 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 the way that changed and the only thing i can think of that change that could change something like that across a border is the media that people are consuming on a, on a daily basis well yeah there was there was an individual problem with this of course um just as in this country we had a, a tragedy uh in the care homes which i think i hope one day will be fully investigated in in italy they had in fact very successfully uh, through uh, a particularly active medicine uh, kept alive uh, quite large numbers of old people who were extremely vulnerable. So it also, I think, Italy is, has has the most serious industrial pollution northern Italy uh, outside China. Uh, it's really quite severe. So they did have particular problems, but indeed there was, I think, some quite severe exaggeration by the Italian media of the level of the problem uh, as well, which again might might stand for investigation if anybody's able to do it when the time comes. The fact that you mentioned the air pollution there is is really really interesting to me actually because um, something I've been reading recently was talking about how um, even like small exposure to air that has elevated levels of particulates can increase your chances of of contracting a respiratory disease by by up to thirty percent. It's a possible factor. I, I was alerted to it by Professor Citrit Bakhti at the University of Mainz in mm-hmm. Germany. Who said that it was a? If you were looking for an explanation of the, of the high levels of, of death in northern Italy, it might be one that was worth pursuing. It's obviously it's it's a question rather than an answer, but it, it is there is no doubt that it is a highly polluted area. Hmm. Now you you've been quoted as saying um, cabinet mis- ministers seem to have passed an exam in in stupidity. Now that's that's a really both blind color. Yes, yeah, exactly. it's. It's an amusing and and both and and yet horrifying statement. Um, but honestly, I feel that it's it's this realization, perhaps not from yourself. I'm sure you, you've been aware of of the um, sort of lack of talent in in the upper echelons of, of British politics for for quite a while, probably longer than I've been paying attention to it. I would say, um, but do you think that this is is simply exposing the fact that? Um, there was a book written, um, I think, two years ago by Isabel Harding um, called Why We Get the Wrong Politicians. And her critique was basically that our entire system is set up to basically ignore the legis- legislative side of, of governing. 
Um, do you think this will cause maybe a, a re-examination of, of what we consider to be an admirable trait in an MP or perhaps the way we, we select our members of parliament? Well, no, because we don't select our members of parliament. They're selected for us uh, and then approved uh, generally without dissent uh, in, in tribal elections in which people vote according to tribe rather than, to, rather than according to reason. And, and people, the reason I know all this, again, is because I've gone into it because people get saying to me, well, why don't you stand for parliament? I said, because I can't. Uh, anybody of a, of a dissenting nature w would simply be spat out by the selection procedures of any of the major parties long before uh, he or she got to the point of, of selection, but which is done by uh, by cabals of, um, of of party faithful, and is also these days subject usually to the strong veto from the party centre. So it's not possible, and people don't. Uh, I, I defy people to come up. Uh, with an example in recent years of a genuinely independent member of parliament elected at a general election. It sometimes can happen in by-elections when people are off the tribal leash. But at general election, people say, well, what about Martin Bell? I said, well, Martin Bell uh, was elected in Tatton because the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats withdrew. <laughs> uh, that's not independence. No. Uh, you are, particularly if the Labour Party withdraws in your favour, you are in their debt. Uh, and, uh, and Martin Bell was not a true independent. It just doesn't happen. So th that the, 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 the crucial part of the Constitution uh, of the United Kingdom, which needs to be altered, is the political parties. We have two more or less dead political parties kept alive uh, by state aid, uh, which is much more than people realize, uh, particularly when parties are in opposition, uh, and also by dodgy billionaires who, who fund them. And keep them alive. If you held a flag day for either of the major British political parties, uh, no one would give them any money. Uh, it's not individuals don't like them, but they are sustained artificially long beyond the point where they were any use. But say by uh, by things which ought not to be done for them. And so we have a, a, an ossified party system kept kept alive by by artificial means. And if you could bring that to an end and replace the, the, the dead political parties, long outlived their usefulness with new ones, then it would revive the constitution immensely. But what you can do about the fact that the educational system produces such dollars, uh, at this stage, I don't know. I've argued for years and years and years for the reintroduction of academic selection in the state system. Uh, but of course, one of the problems of having a bad education system is that year by year, the number of people capable of teaching to a high standard at all diminishes. So how you would re reconstruct an education system and rebuild the teaching profession, which was remotely equivalent to the one which we had in the British state system up to 1965, I don't know. That, that's one of the, the key reforms, which I've argued for for so long, is that we need a complete revolution in our, in our education system. Uh, without that, uh, uh, probably a revolution in our party system is, is impossible or wouldn't have much effect if it took place. I mean, academic selection um, for secondary school is something that's a little more sort of natural to me coming from from Northern Ireland because we, we still have um, some form of selection. Um, and I did the, the 11 plus, which I'm not sure many people in England will even know what it is. It's essentially... I know there's some places where it still exists, but they're, they're isolated and generally in, in, in well-off commuter areas where the, the 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 whole thing is completely distorted mm. by middle class people quite reasonably trying to save uh, on school fees which they would otherwise have to pay which are crippling mm. well 
Do, would you would you be um, in favour of the idea um, of publicly funded elections? Um, Andrew Yang has has touted the idea in in America where you would be a, a party would be given a certain number of what he calls democracy dollars or uh, to to then spend on some advertising or some staff or that each party was given sort of a a set fund and then they had to work from that. Would you know? Do you think that that could potentially work? Well, how do you allocate? How do you allocate the money? Uh, do you allocate it on the basis of existing performance of previous numbers of seats or votes? In which case, you do, in which case, you simply freeze the system as it was. Much, much, more, much more in favour of, of, of parties being able to raise uh, individual donations only, probably a maximum of a hundred pounds per person. Uh, absolutely nothing. Uh, you no know, ten years jail for for either raising or donating at, at levels higher than that would be my mm. view. Uh, and what you can raise, you can spend. But I'm also very much in favour of, uh, of uh, the institution of a none of the below slot at the top of every ballot paper. And in every election where none of the below is, is, is actually at the top of the ballot, then all the candidates are disqualified uh, and all the parties which, which stood are disqualified. Um, and the election is rerun uh, without those parties and candidates. I think that would eliminate a lot of rubbish. Uh, but I think at the moment you bring the state in, then you—it's like the broadcasting rules in Britain. They—they they, they ossify and, and freeze the existing system because they're based on on giving money and airtime to the existing monoliths and keeping them alive. And it's the artificial keeping alive of the parties which I particularly want to bring to it. And these are theoretical things. Personally, I think the country's finished. I think it's unreformable. Uh, I have many, many very good ideas for what should happen. But I, you'll say, why are you always on the sidelines? Why are you say, well, because that's where I'm forced mm. to be, because there is no room for independent thought or, 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 or critical thinking or, uh, or, or, or intelligent radical reform in our political system. I can't get in. Do you think that's because of the first past? Do you think the first past the post system sort of prevents no, that as well? Great. It's, it's nothing to do with it. People, I, if we had proportional representation, we'd have permanent uh, left liberal government. But the coalitions would be forged after the election in secret rather than made before the election in mm. public. I can't see any advantage to that at all. A baffling target. I mean, the first past the post has a, has a particularly wonderful effect in that we all who are old, those of us who are old enough can remember the day when Ted Heath was prime minister one day and a private citizen with his piano out on the street the next. And this is, in a, this is one of the great things about a free country, that the rulers have to be removable. Uh, and first past the post does this. You actually you can actually chuck out a government you don't like. The moment you go for public, uh, for, for, for um, proportional representation systems, you can never get rid of them. Even if they 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 don't they don't get particularly many votes unless they're actually totally eliminated, the chances are the people you dislike will be in the next coalition. Mm -hmm. in Belgium and Holland, it's, it's always the same people, and in Germany, you can't be in the government until you're already in the government. Yeah, I mean, well, I'd, in Northern Ireland, we've seen the effect of um, mandatory coalitions in that we've got. Will you have a special yeah. problem in Northern Ireland? <laughs> I've only treated your private brief. Yeah, perhaps perhaps not today. Uh, so uh, the last question I wanted to ask you was, um, you've mentioned that you feel the, well, it's not you alone, but the, the decline of the middle class is is a real problem for the stability of a state and of a democracy. Um, why do you think that is? And is our middle class beyond saving? 
I think middle class is more or less dead, and the middle class has now been replaced by a sort of client class of people working for the public sector. The middle class used to be independent professional people uh, whose, whose, whose profession uh, enabled them to support themselves quite independently of the state. They didn't have any clients in the state, uh, state contracts or anything of that kind. They were, and they were, they were educated people uh, who had a sense of responsibility, and there were large numbers of them. There was a critical mass of them sufficient to say when something wrong was going on, this is wrong, we're against it, and for their voices to be heard. And it's gone. Uh, it, what, let's say what we have now, we have a, a professional class, but by and large, I mean, where I live in Oxford, uh, I suspect that in the suburb where I live, uh, I'm probably one of about four or five people who isn't employed by the public sector. Okay, well, um, hopefully, you know, uh, the the world isn't all as uh, depressing as it as it may seem right now. Um, no, depression, depression is irrational grief. Uh, the problem that we have now is it's, it's not depressing; it is tragic. Uh, you're entitled to be grieved. You're surrounded by things which are which are bad and which a rational person must recognise as bad. Well, perhaps if we get enough rational people to recognise the severity of the situation, things may improve. But well, that's pretty much like if we had some ham, we could have some <laughs> ham and eggs. If we had some eggs, really. Well, it? that's true. Well, my, my other favourite song, if with a ladder and some glasses, you could see the Hackney Marshes. If it wasn't for the houses mm. in between, I, yeah, if. Well, I mean, I, I, I like to, to, to hold on to some form of optimism. I'm, I'm actually of the opinion that. Well, don't do that. Optimism is the key to is <laughs> that guaranteed route to be to unhappiness. Don't, don't, uh, don't take that road. Whatever okay. Well, I'll, I'll try to steer clear of the optimism then when I'm trying to think about my future. Um, but Peter, it's been um, an absolute pleasure. I want to thank you again for appearing on, on my show. Well, thank you, homie. Thanks so much for listening. If you haven't already and you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast and to our mailing list. And don't forget, my book, Brexit, The Establishment Civil War, is now available for pre-order on Amazon. You'll find the link in the description below. Until next time, 